and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 30th of April with me, Ian Welsh. I've been attending Innovation Forum's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference this week and coming up we've got an extract from the opening session where I spoke with Textile Exchange COO Claire Burkamp about her hopes ahead of the COP26 meeting later this year in Glasgow, how to prepare for the meeting and what to do if there's a bit of a fudged outcome. I also caught up with Stephen Bethel, co-founder of Bank & Vogue and Beyond Ritual, about the massive opportunities for reuse and upcycling of so many of the garments and fabrics that are thrown away. That's all to come. No news roundup this time. That'll be back next week. To open Innovation Forum's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event this week, I had a conversation with Textile Exchange COO Claire Bergkamp. We talked about what the sector, and business more broadly, should be doing in the run-up to the COP26 meeting in Scotland this autumn. Will it deliver the pathway to keeping within 1.5 degrees of global warming that is now the principal target? Well, we'll see. Claire, what are your hopes for COP26? I mean, I think like many folks, we've got a lot of hopes for COP. COP26 is being regarded as the most important COP since uh, the Paris Agreement in 2015. This will be the first time that nations come together to discuss the commitments they made at the Paris Agreement. Each nation that is coming has signed up to first announce a set of specific climate action known as the Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs. They're also set to reveal longer-term plans to decarbonize their economies by 2050 and to set targets to give $100 billion a year to countries considered the most vulnerable to climate change. So I think that if all of those things get moving, that would be great. One thing is that the nationally determined contributions as they stand today are not what is needed. They're not adequate. We need nations to step it up. Uh, Nations have not shown the level of climate ambition needed to drive the deep and rapid change required to avoid and adapt to the worst impacts of climate change. I think one good sign is that the U.S. is back in the Paris Agreement, and we all feel that success at COP26 is crucial. Um, We really need governments to fulfill the promises that they've set in the past, really focusing on those NDCs and finance. But we also recognize, I think all of us, that governments can't do this alone. And I think that, you know, in this context, we're going to talk about that a little bit, that the world needs to come together, that governments, along with cities and businesses, need to step up to the transition to a low-carbon future. Businesses have different resources, different skills, and different capacity. There's more ability to engage with innovation, which is what we're going to need to achieve the 1.5 degree ambition. And I also really hope to see solid commitments and plans for greener, more sustainable economies. We have this opportunity, which is a very rare opportunity to build back and to build back greener. And I really, really hope that we see coming out of COP real commitments that are meaningful towards building back better and achieving what's already on the agenda. Do you think it's going to deliver the you know, the clear outcomes, the ambitious goals and the final decisions on carbon markets that our, our conference content suggests? I mean, is that going to happen, do you think? Well, I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> truth be told, I don't feel like anyone knows. This is expected to be one of the big debate topics, for sure, you know, that people do seem to have very different views on carbon markets, nations. But it's critical that we do find or get to a favorable conclusion. International carpet markets put a price on carbon, which I think most people know. And it's important that we deal with this and we get to conclusion in the negotiations. If we want to have a chance of stabilizing global temperature rise and avoiding runaway climate change, we, we really have to get this. They're a key component of the Paris Agreement, and we know that the world needs them. So I do hope that we see a conclusion to it. 
what from what I've read and you know heard, this is highlighted as one of the things where others expected to be robust and a big topic of debate happening. Moving on from what we were just discussing, do you think there's a danger of putting too many eggs in this cop-shaped basket? I think there, I mean, there's always a danger when we put too much pressure on anything, is what I, I would say. We need to acknowledge how important COP is, but at the same time, we don't need to wait for this, this moment or any moment to get going. Um, I do think, you know, we, we assume that one thing is going to solve it for us. It never quite comes to that. We do have solutions now that we know that work. We know that we need to decarbonate supply chains. We know that we need to phase out coal. We need to support better farming practices, look at ways for sequestration and regeneration. So there's things that we need to be doing now. And if people aren't already doing them, then I would say we don't need to wait or rely on COP to get moving. That being said, it's an incredible moment for movement. So I do hope that we see some of the outcomes that we've been waiting on. It feels to me that perhaps one of the differences now to previous meetings that everyone's built up to is that there really are now quite a lot of solutions out there. We, and as you just say, we do know what has to be done. And there is definitely a sense of that moving along. Do you think that's the case? Do you think that the moment is now because, in fact, we can see some of the solutions and exceptions and that they have to be used? I do think that we're at a place where there's no excuse not to get things going. You know, I've been quite heartened by some of the news coming out of the U.S. personally, you know, that there's a way to do this that makes business sense, that makes sense for governments that, you know, I think people have been talking about for years and years. But we have 10 years, you know, we're less now quite a bit. We have till 2030 to really see some significant reductions. And if we don't get moving on the solutions that we know, we're not going to make the deadline. In my previous life in a brand, all of the major successes that we saw, you know, at a corporate level around transforming supply chains took years, not months. We have till 2030 to make some of these massive reductions, but we have to start now. Nothing's going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in a month. It's not going to happen in a day. Um, these are massive transformations and system change that we need to start to enact. Do you think that, in fact, one of the silver linings of the pandemic response will be that it's clearly demonstrable that action can be made quickly? I mean, the way that actions on governments have really, really moved very fast and unleashed huge resources to tackle the crisis from the pandemic. Is there a sense that if we get climate to be treated as a similar sort of a crisis, in fact, maybe things can be moved in this, at the speed and the rate of change necessary? I would like to think, yes, that we can learn and see how quickly we can collaborate as nations, as a world, uh, to address a problem. I also want to be realistic <laughs> and know that policy needs to be a huge part of this. The collaboration is absolutely there. We've now seen how to mobilize and address a problem collectively. And so we have that. Maybe it's a good time to build on top of that ability and that knowledge that we can work together a bit better. But at the same time, we need that policy. We need those regulations. We need the carbon markets because without them, the building back will be done in the most financially, you know, in a system in which exists without considerations that need to be taken in. Um, we won't be phasing out coal. We won't be decarbonizing, which we just absolutely have to do. Yes, the, kind of, the change in the sort of uh, the way the markets operate really has to come, doesn't it? Are you optimistic that under the situation we are currently, the promises being made to the developing countries will be kept. Do you think promises will be kept? I think until the negotiations start, we are kind of guessing. 
it feels like I'm hearing is that there's movement towards those three things I mentioned around the NDCs, the decarbonizing economies, and the contribution, the financial contribution. Those those are at the top of the agenda still. Um, they haven't been removed. And so they will be there. They will be talked about. They will be debated. And I do hope that we see what we need to see. It's hard to know. I mean, of course, it's a hard moment financially for governments of the world as well. But these finance targets need to be top of the agenda. What do you think we need to do if we get to the end of the year and we have a bit of a fudge, as we in the case in so many other similar meetings? What do we do if this simply is a bit of a, well, we don't quite get what we need to. There's a sort of bit of movement, but it actually all comes into a fudge at the end of the day. What do we do then? Truth be told, we have to hold people in power accountable. That's what it comes down to. These are representatives, government representatives coming to negotiate on our behalf as citizens. And if there's a fudge, we need to hold them accountable to it. Climate cannot continue to be or become in places where it isn't a partisan issue. It cannot be one political party or the other. It is something that we need to hold anyone in any office accountable for. It's an issue of uh, survival, as dramatic as that sometimes does sound. It's the truth. And so holding our leaders and elected officials accountable is what we need to do. Even if there's not a fudge, probably, but (laughs) if there is a fudge, it becomes crucial that we ask for that level of accountability back to the people that are there negotiating on our behalf. Let's think of the apparel sector. For the apparel sector, what are you looking for particularly from COP? I think for the apparel sector, it's an interesting moment to come together. I think that uh, there's power in storytelling and companies can think about how they want to tell their story around what they're doing to address climate change. So I don't want to take away from that. But at the same time, let's not let this be only the moment. We need to keep it going. We also know that business does play an important role in these negotiations. In the past, you know, it, it works if a business says, we'll do this if policymakers do this. And then if you do that, we'll go further and do this showing that willingness for a plan of action to help influence policy in the right direction is meaningful. I think that brands, organizations can make commitments, continue to make commitments and and advance the level of ambition in those commitments, get into the detail of what those commitments mean. Um, You know, in textiles, a lot of impact is at the textile fiber cultivation stage. Get to know your supply chains, understand what those commitments are actually going to take, whether it's the removal of coal or the changing of how cotton is grown or wool, you know, sheep graze. Really starting to unpack that, I think, is going to be important leading up and after COP. There's a moment for motivation, specifically in fashion and in textiles. We in this industry have a really powerful communication vehicle to the customer, to the people. And I think that there's an opportunity to think about what is the 1.5 degree pathway for consumers and how do we engage consumers in a more meaningful way towards the transformation that we want to see. The next Innovation Forum's Spring Conference Series will be the Future of Climate Action event from the 25th to 27th of May. You can hear from experts at Schneider Electric, Novozymes, Reckitt Bank Kaiser, Walgreens Boots Alliance and many more. Also coming up is the Future of Food at Europe event to be held from the 15th to 17th of June. Already signed up to participate are Unilever, Tesco, Danone, Tiger Brands, Little and Bayer. Full details on innovationforum.co.uk, register before close on 15th of May and save £100 on conference passes. During the Apparel and Textiles Conference this week, I spoke with Stephen Bethel, co-founder of Bank and Vogue Beyond Retro. We talked about the big opportunities for reuse and upscaling of pre-worn garments and what's necessary to move to a situation where reused materials are a standard input at scale for apparel manufacturing. To get us started off, Stephen, just outline briefly what Bank and Vogue does. 
So Bank of Vogue, its mission is innovative and relevant solutions to the crisis of stuff. That's our tagline. It's on the company door when you walk in and our headquarters are based in Ottawa, Canada. It, what does that mean? Our main focus is on used clothing, apparel, shoes, purses, belts, and household goods, all of which, you know, Americans and Canadians are buying worldwide. We're all buying at mass. And Bank and Vogue focuses on what can we do with this stuff? It's how do we create an environment for resale on a domestic level? But if it's something can't be resold domestically, where do we find markets for it? And then the conversation of, okay, if we can't find a resale market, what happens after that? As a point of interest, I think people might be interested in is that when you donate to a charity in the U.S., typically they have a thrift store, they'll only sell through 25% of what's donated to them. So what happens to that other 75%? Or what happens if the charity just gets so much, they get inundated, as many charities are through COVID, and their doors are closed, what happens to that product? So Bank & Vogue is a company that focuses on the solution to what to do with that product. Okay, again, you can create new products and upcycle fabrics and materials. So what are the barriers to reuse or upcycling of fabrics? The interesting thing is that most modern retailers will tell you that it's driven by analytics. Modern retail is driven by analytics. What we see is that there is an enormous amount of analytics needed to be able to run a supply chain of unused because you're dealing with onesies. So bizarrely enough, analytics and an understanding of what is available is a barrier. But really, instead of saying, what are the barriers? What are the real opportunities? What we're really excited about is to see that the purchasing of used secondhand, both in North America, but also Bank of Vogue has a family of businesses in Europe. So we run Beyond Retros, which are in the UK and Sweden. And these are curated offering of apparel that you can find both online because we're an omni-channel retailer. I once heard this description, I don't know if you've ever been to Jamaica, but a DJ in Jamaica is called a, a selecta. And what makes a Jamaican dance party really work is the selecta, the guy that's able to choose or the gal that's able to choose the next tune to build a momentum. That offering, that selecting of the right items is a critical point about used resale globally. Really, it's about making smart decisions about what product needs to go where to be able to maximize its value. Is it a 1950s pair of jeans in Soho or is it a tank top in Guatemala? This idea of being good selectives, which is what Bank of Vogue and Beyond Retro is, is the really the biggest challenge to the used clothing business. How do we promote reuse? It's not about just sort of putting stuff on the shelf. It's being about being intuitive about what works for what market. And to do that for one or two garments is an issue, but Bank & Vogue, we move about 4,500 containers a year, sea containers a year of used clothes. In each one of those containers, there's 40,000 pounds of clothes in it. So the scale and then going back to the analytics conversation, the breadth of this problem is significant. But to be really successful at it, we have to be really good at triaging from this area of New York. We know that product does well there. From this kind of product, it does really well there. That covers over the use section. But then what happens to all the product that you can't reuse or resell in either domestic or rural markets? Well, about 20% of the clothes that we sell gets cut up for wiping cloth, cleaning cloth. So things like t-shirts, sweatshirts, towels. That's an interesting conversation because... When we look at the other alternatives, and I kind of skipped this step, for us as a business, we want to reuse as much as possible internationally, domestically. 
But if an item can't be reused, can we repair it and can we remake it? Can we turn it into something else? So about eight years ago, we set up a unit where we started cutting up apparel to make new fashion. And the simplest thing would be to take a pair of jeans that has hole in the knees, cut them into shorts. But the most complicated things is we were taking leather jackets, cutting them up and then making them into backpacks. This idea of taking something that wasn't relevant and cutting it up and turning it into something irrelevant to us was a really exciting idea. A really great story my mom would tell you if, if she was here is the Alabama, we got 20,000 prison outfits from the Alabama Department of Corrections. They were orange prison outfits that said ADC on them. Well, what do you do with 20,000 orange prison outfits? Well, we took them, cut them up, and we turned them into backpacks. So there was orange, these bright orange backpacks with the letters ADC. How do you take something that's not relevant, that's considered a waste, which I really hate that word waste, and turn it into something that's relevant? What you're doing is maximizing value. The value is inherent in these goods that previously have been given very little value. You're actually recognizing the value and using them. And I know you work with a number of big brands. You demonstrated and showed us a Converse trainer that you're involved in. What I'm interested in, you're showing it right now. Does the concept of upcycling at scale get brands and retailers excited? And what are the differences across the sector from top end to mass market? I think what's happening is the customers knocking the door and saying, we want an offering. I think there's departments within brands that are saying, hey, wait a minute, upcycling is the quickest path to carbon neutrality. It's the quickest path. All this other moving around recycling, it's a shifting in numbers. Upcycling is that quickest path, but it's tough. And it's work. It's certainly new territory. You know, the work we did with the Gina Tricot and the Upcycle Collection, what will give brands confidence, like every problem in life, in every business problem in life is sales. So when we do a drop and it sells right away, even if it's sold at a slightly higher premium or within their range, are they excited? They're excited because they can see the sales. The brand collaborations that we've done, whether it be at Urban Outfitters, whether it be at Gina Tricot, or whether it be the work with Converse, the fact that the consumers are engaged in buying the product, that's what's going to get them excited. So tell me about the shoe you bid with Converse. What's your input? What do you provide for that shoe? So our point of it, going back to this Jamaican Selecta, our point is that our skill set is that we have all this raw material coming in. We've pulled out all of the product that is usable. Then we're left with this triage of, of product. Our job is to choose within a boundary of product that Converse has set out Basically, we are kind of a, an interpretation of a fabric supplier to Converse. It's just that instead of it being on a roll of goods, it's on single units. And that's really exciting because all of a sudden, if you can stop thinking about used as being a waste stream, but think about it as how do you translate it as an input to new manufacturing, that's our role. So when you provide, I guess, the fabric part of the sneaker. For, for just the, the yeah, just the, the fabric for the upper, for the outside. Absolutely. Okay. And frankly, you know, to speak to Converse's effort here, they put a lot of energy into figuring out how to do this at scale and figured out not only how to do it at scale, but they figured out how do you make something consistently inconsistent? And there's a lot of trick into that. And a lot of passionate people at Converse really sat there and, and figured this out. I feel very lucky to, to be in a position where we understand the stream of product coming in and being able to help with that conversation. I like that, you know, the consistently inconsistent is great because customers, I guess, are they're almost getting a unique product. Everything is slightly different. So that actually means that for them, there's an interesting story behind every product. I like that. I think it's a clever bit of marketing. 
just to push that a little bit further, the shoe that the Congress just dropped, which was the Beyond Retro Hawaiian shirt shoe. Obviously, if you go into a Beyond Retro shop in the summer, we've got all these Hawaiian shirts. We love them. But there are many Hawaiian shirts that we get that are damaged in the collar or damaged. But it's an iconic product. You know what a Hawaiian shirt is. Well, the, the drop that they just did of Hawaiian shirts was every single solitary Hawaiian shirt was different. And so this idea that if we as producers of product can get away the, from the fastidiousness of blue has to be this exact blue and embrace the difference, that's going to be unlocking a world of change. So Bank and Vogue, we're in the business of maximizing resale first. We're obviously, you know, have the Beyond Retro shops. It would be amiss to not say that to celebrate the moment that we're part of reselfridges. We open up a concession in Selfridges, and it just speaks to how far the consumer demand has gone for used and vintage. But then also, if it can't be resold in one of our shops or in a Selfridge, uh, can we repair it? Can we remake it? Can we make it into an item? Uh, but if it can't do any of those things, the next thing that we are in is fiber to fiber recycling. So I'm, I'm really proud to say two years ago at the Innovation Forum, I sat with the president of RenewCell at your, your forum. I was really excited to say, look, we're working on this. We're getting really close. Last, unfortunately, in March, in the, at the beginning of the pandemic, RenewCell announced with H&M the blue dress that they made. But we, for since 2017, worked with taking post-consumer textiles and making it an input to uh, the RenewCell process for them to be able to actually take a used garment and turn it chemically into a fiber that could be made into a new garment. And that, for us, is really exciting. Generally, I can't tell you how giddy I am about that. And then, and then uh, RenewCell announced in August their work with Levi's, making the Levi's 502. And again, the jeans that we collected, the jeans that we supplied to RenewCell, is now going into an input to a brand new pair of jeans. This is circularity. And we have these conversations about, hey, what can we do to get to scale? These guys are on that path to scale. We're really pleased to be part of that journey. Absolutely. It, it does feel and seem that those sort of processes are the ones that are going to get us over the edge and really get towards the circular economy type models that everybody talks about. Something else that came up at the event was thinking about the overall impacts of the apparel sector. One that's been initially the kind of models for the sector are designed for one of continual growth and continual consumption. How much can the concept of reusing and upcycling deal with or cope with the continual growth in apparel production? Do we need to think really about reducing growth? I mean, is, do we just have to accept that, that we need to be thinking about reducing growth as well? You know, it's funny. I feel it, I need to somewhat stick to my lane and only can speak about my heritage within the used clothing business and say that we've seen a massive increase in the amount of used clothes that are coming through Bank and Vogue's door. Our company has grown exponentially and the amount of used clothes that have come in has grown exponentially. I think that what we're at least seeing from our customer demand is that use is going to be an input to new man manufacturing. And actually, the interesting thing is that the closets of the consumer will be the new factories, that clothes will slip in and out of closets, and that will create an ecosystem and will put downward pressure on the need for new clothes. We have to have to balance that, that there are other parts of the world that are growing exponentially. I feel like sometimes we're in these conversations and there are big parts of the world that are left out of it. So take like a place like India, like the consumer demand for apparel is exponentially growing. Their internal sector is growing. So where we may see a decline in the north, there may be an exponential growth in the global south. And we're excited to be participating in research and development projects in India on the circular economy and how that also can play a factor in the apparel sector. 
I guess we're talking about a reduction in growth of virgin materials into the apparel sector, perhaps. But that then again has impacts because if you think about the impacts on cotton producers, I mean, that's obviously a concern there, knock on impact there. So as ever with these things, it gets more and more complicated the more you delve into it. What are the data points that you need to be able to identify the fabrics and materials that you need? I was at a conference and they said, okay, if I, if I was wanted to get into sustainability, what should I study? What should I read about? And I said, math, go into analytics. This is a math problem. Our company is driven by an Oracle-based, uh, the accounting, the ERP systems, the NetSuite system. I can't stress enough that let's take the retail side alone. To be able to do a trend forecasting and analytics forecasting on a buy plan on single unit SKUs is incredibly complicated and takes an enormous amount of data to be able to build packet data to be able to do trend forecasting. A typical retailer can say, oh, we had this SKU, there was 1,200 of them, and it sold through this much. We have SKUs of one of one-offs. And so how do you build a data analytics? Forget about the fiber component just for a moment. Just take the retail component. Data is a critical part of what will make our company successful. For the company size that we have, data analysts are a critical part of what will make us successful. We'll make us successful retailers, we'll make us successful recyclers. And then, you know, just take some of the issues about chemical recycling technology that exists now. You know, there's sort of phase one of the chemical recycling, phase two and phase three. Phase one is a very narrowed amount of product that can come in. And phase two is a wider amount. And phase three is, this has to do with the blends of fibers. But you need to understand the stream of product coming through. And that is all going to be about it, the daily analytics of understanding the supply of raw material coming through to your door. Because the scale of what we've got, as I said, it, you know, every week we have four to five million garments. To be able to understand what is there and what is coming has to be data driven. How do we interpret that data? When we talk about, oh, things need to be 100% cotton or they need to be 100% polyester. When we know that when we do our studies, we've done tests and there's other research papers behind us, 30% of the labels that people put on garments aren't right. We have an enormous amount of analytics, enormous amount of data. Is it right? Like you go into a cotton field and pick cotton, you know you've gotten cotton. You go and you get 2 million pounds of jeans, how much cotton you've actually got in it. So when you say the labeling isn't right, does that mean that you've got things that are labeled as cotton, but actually are polyester? Or is it more that the labeled as cotton, but in fact, there's a little bit of polyester in there as well? That's exactly it. Some of the fiber to fiber recycling, they've asked us to deliver 100% polyester as an example. But then when you actually look at the profile of what we've delivered under a microscope, the lab comes back and says, I know all the labels said it was 100%. There's other things in it. I think it's an interesting conversation because when we talk about digital passports for garments, when we talk about what are the supply inputs uh, for fiber to fiber recycling, what are the barriers to scaling, it speaks to the fact that there's some squishiness in what's in front of us. Let's bring this all together, bearing in mind everything we've talked about. What is it that's necessary to move reused materials as an input at scale for apparel manufacturing? Is it just all the above, all the stuff we talked about? Is there some missing secret? I certainly don't think that there's a magic bullet. The first, for sure, is these natural avenues of resale and maximizing that resale, that in and out of closets in the countries, that's going to be the first thing. And as those marketplaces grow and those both the e-commerce platforms and the brick and mortar grow, that'll be a critical part of the conversation. But in terms of the fiber to fiber recycling 
it will be that the tech will get better at taking a wider array of products. We are a ways away from that. We heard today, you know, uh, many of the, the recyclers said, look, you have to remove this, you have to remove that. And oh yeah, we don't want that. You know, as the tech gets better, that's going to be probably the biggest barrier. But all that being said, there's a lot already on the path to overcoming that. Our mission of innovative and relevant solutions to the crisis of stuff is coming. We're finding homes for it. I think the other big conversation, and it's probably not a great place to, to go towards the end, is what do you do with the African question? A lot of charities and a lot of sorters and recyclers depend on that used market to basically finance the recycling projects. And it's not something that's often talked about, but if you don't have those reused markets that pay a premium for the product that can be reused, can you have recycling projects? Can they finance themselves? And the answer is probably no. You need to be able to get the revenue because you can't collect product in bins in Germany, grind it up and sell it as fiber because no one will pay for that input. What you need to do is pull out the reuse, sell it as much as possible domestically, and then sell the reuse again. But the real opportunity, the hidden opportunity is, can we set up recycling facilities in Africa where the product is ending up as an end? I see that as an untapped opportunity. As a business guy, I look at that and go, there's something there that we should figure out. But there needs to be an honest conversation about reuse globally, not just domestically. That's interesting opportunities, you say. So I was going to ask you at the end of so what's next for Bank & Co? Is that what's next? Are you going to have a further seal your world domination by moving into Africa as well? Our real keys are to keep building Beyond Retros. You'll see more Beyond Retros in your neighborhood in the UK and throughout Scandinavia. You'll certainly see a growth in uh, partnerships where we're supplying used as an input to new manufacturing, whether it be with the Converses or the Gina Tree Coats. We're really proud and feel like that is actually the biggest place where we can help on the carbon footprint. And certainly a growth on the fiber to fiber recycling. We're really pleased that you know last year we signed a contract with RenewCell for 30,000 metric tons. That's three C containers a day of used clothes being turned 100% back into new fiber. Those three components we're really excited about and keen to pick up other people that want to join us on this mission of innovative and relevant solutions to the crisis of stuff. I feel the solution is coming. Well, thank you. It's certainly, if your enthusiasm alone was almost, you think would be sufficient to drive it, drive it forward. Stephen Bethel from Bank and Vogue. Thank you very much indeed. Fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. As ever, look out at innovationforum.co.uk for all the usual audio interviews and insights. New this week is some further insight from Innovation Forum's research into developing resilient small farmer communities. But all for now, I'm Marine Welsh and I'll be back next week.